Well, hello and welcome to The Rebind, a podcast about putting all the pages of the Bible back together. On today's first of the month interview, we'll talk with Bishop Quig Lawrence about the role of liturgy in internalizing the Bible's whole message. Whether you're Anglican or Amish or Independent Baptist, you're not going to want to miss what he's got to say about these helpful habits. Well, I'm very excited today to get some more important perspectives here on the show. You know, not just the the scholars with their big dissertations and specialized research, but also full-time pastors in the front lines of church ministry, people who are interacting with others about the Bible and weddings and, and at funerals and everything in between. Bishop Quig Lawrence has been serving as a minister at Church of the Holy Spirit, an evangelical Anglican church for over 32 years. Uh, he's also got his doctorate of ministry in Christian spirituality and evangelism from Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. And he's seen his denomination through a lot of twists and turns and upheavals as he's stood up for the importance and authority of all of Scripture. So there's a lot that we could pick his brain on today, whether it's Rwanda or evangelism or hunting or bluegrass music. But today we want to talk about liturgy, something that he's helped walk his congregation through to over the years. So Bishop Lawrence, thanks so much for joining us today. Andrew, great to be with you, brother. Awesome. Well, awesome to have you here. Why don't you just start us out by helping us Baptists here with the lingo a little bit. What What is liturgy? What do we mean by that? Well, I think it, it comes from a Greek word, which means the work of the people, the work mm -hmm. of the people. And um, we're going to get into this later, but uh, I have been in charismatic circles. I've been in formal liturgical, you know, Episcopal mm -hmm. settings, uh, non-denom settings. Mm -hmm. and what I find generally, just kind of bottom line up front, as they say in the military, bottom line up front, is that churches tend to be either um, liturgical with a set order of worship or just free form and, and whatever. And I, for a long time, did not like set liturgies. I did mm -hmm. not like form. I was like, Dear word, this is just boring. I can't stand it. I want, I want, mm. I want to feel something. I want. But what I've come to realize as I got older is that um, everyone has a liturgy. Mm. Every single church has a liturgy. We'll talk more about that. Um, and so the question is not whether you have a form of worship, because <clears throat> everyone has a form of worship. The question is what is the nature of that form, and is that form biblical? Is it focused on Christ? Um, is it focused on the worship to the Father? And does it involve people, or is it basically just involve the pastor and maybe a few deacons or the pastor and a choir? Hmm. So what's really interesting about liturgy in its best sense is that the people of God come together and they bring a sacrifice of praise and they worship the Father in Jesus' name and the power of the Spirit. And so I, I have really seen um, and been part of churches where I was a participant and active, but I've also been in churches where I just sat there and basically all I did is give money and listen. So you're saying, you know, liturgy for the fancy word that it is, is really just talking about the form and structure we all have, you know, whatever kind of setting we find ourselves in. And uh, the question is more, what kind of liturgy do we have and how involved are we in it? Right, exactly. Gotcha. So it sounds like maybe you have a little bit of an interesting history with liturgy and with the background. Um, 
if if you haven't always been a fan of it, what what made you become a believer in it? What what made that change for you? Well, I've, I'm, I've always said I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer, and it takes me a while to get things. But really, what happened is I was raised in a, a, an Episcopal church, which was very liturgical and had very set prayers. So I was exposed mm-hmm. to that, and I, again, I just found it dreadfully dry and boring. And part of that was I didn't know Jesus, and I didn't know the scriptures. But as I came to Christ and went to more, um, say, more free form type of services, what I found is initially it was super exciting. Hmm. But after a while, I realized like, oh my goodness, we're we're doing the exact same thing every week. It's the same hmm. four women, charismatic women, praying out loud. They're praying about their honor, their uncle's bunions or something, and it was just not edifying. It wasn't focused on Christ. It was more hmm. it was more man centered. And it was usually taken over by a few very uh, religious and spiritual people. Hmm. Once again, I felt like I'm on the outside. Hmm. And, and what happened is, as I started to look at the Book of Common Prayer, I realized, oh my goodness, this is nothing but Scripture, all 66 books tied together in a form where we as a people can worship together. Hmm. I never realized how much Bible was in the Anglican Book of Common Prayer or even the Episcopal Book of Common Prayer. Um, until I started reading the Bible. And then all these little phrases that you say during the, uh, our corporate worship, you find, oh, well, that's in Nahum, or that's in Jude, or that's in some remote. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's basically the, the Bible um, arranged so we as the people of God can worship together. Yeah, Very God-centered, not man-centered worship. Yeah, yeah. So as an Anglican minister, maybe just give us the... The quick rundown, the 101 on on what the liturgy looks like in typical service there. You know, what what does the Book of Common Prayer or or what you guys use look when it's fleshed out as maybe different than like a, a non-denom church or something like that? Right. So in some ways, it's not that different because, you know, what happens? People come into the worship space. There's usually a prelude music playing. And then there's some kind of uh, invitation or call to worship. Uh, then there's more singing of songs. In our case, songs that really focus on the Father, and, and we do care about theology. Um, so there's mm-hmm. singing part of worship. Uh, yeah. Then there is the, the prayers of the people. Um, and basically, we would do like adoration of God, confession of sin, thanksgiving, and supplication, which is just a fancy word for praying for other people. Mm-hmm. Um, we do that. Then we what's have, the what's the people element of that? How are the people involved in those prayers? That's a great question. So while we have forms, we pray together. We also have space for open prayer. And again, it's kind of like opening a Pandora's box, if you will. Anytime you depart from <laughs> red liturgy and introduce freedom, which I'm a big fan of, actually. I like structure and freedom. But once you open the door, uh, then it can, the horse can run out of the barn. It can get kind of crazy. We had a woman with a big wooden spoon, four foot wooden spoon, marching around the sanctuary, you know, doing something. I'm like, what are you doing? She said, I'm stirring up the Holy Ghost. And so, you know, the point is, uh, during the prayers, the people participate by praying the same thing together. And you might go, well, that's just boring as, as all get out. Well, maybe initially it might seem that way. But eventually, um, you know those prayers. They're written on your heart, so you don't even have to think about them. Much like the Jews would say the Shema. 
um, much like the Jews would say, the 18 prayers in the synagogue together. Um, eventually, they're so ingrained in your brain and your heart that um, when you go to worship, it's actually, um, what would be the word? Soothing is the wrong word. Calming is not the right word. It might be uh, there is appropriate structure that leads away for the Holy Spirit to move in our midst, as opposed to chaos. In other words, before when I was in charismatic circles, you never knew what was coming. It might be the woman with the four-foot wooden spoon. It might be the lady falling out on the stage, breathing like you know a wounded animal. I mean, we saw the strangest things. And so I've really found that our people now like form and freedom, form and freedom. And, and mm. the freedom part, um, the pastors have to be pastors. So if, somebody, if it gets weird, you need, you need to, you know, you don't have a flag, man. You got you to gotta call it out. One of my um, exhortations or encouragements to pastors is, again, everybody has a liturgy. Um, but what I would encourage you is if you use set forms of prayer, which I think are great, especially if they're Bible-based set forms of prayer, that's awesome. But still, there needs to be some freedom. I mean, Paul in 1 Corinthians 14, you know, talks about uh, the charismata, you know, we know songs, hymns, spiritual songs. You can have form, uh, but also allow for freedom. But that necessitates that the pastor be the pastor. Like he's got to make sure it doesn't get weird. So form and freedom. That's what we do. And then the Anglican Book of Common Prayer. So, you know, you have those similar elements of, of corporate prayer. And then we read God's word. Ideally, you're supposed to read four scripture lessons, Old Testament, Psalm, Epistle, and Gospel. And in theory, you get almost the whole Bible in three years. The point of it is to expose the people of God to the whole counsel of God's word. Um, some churches do four lessons, some do less. Um, and sadly, that's probably because they want to sing more. Um, but anyway, that's part of our service. Mm. But really, and the preaching of the word is very important uh, but kind of the last thing, the great crescendo is leading up to the Lord's Supper or Holy Communion or Eucharist, depending what denomination you are. Um, and, and what we found is both are important. Anglicans are people of, lit, uh, of word and sacrament, word and sacrament. Um, and so uh, as we go to Holy Communion, the great thing about that is Christ is known to us in the breaking of bread. Um he really is speaking in, in deep and powerful ways to his people as we t- partake of the bread and the wine. And let's be honest. I mean, Andrew, you've heard me preach. Sometimes I have a good sermon and sometimes I shank it. And it's a foul ball. The great thing about, you know, kind of bookends of, of good liturgy is that you have God's word and that's always good. And then you have Holy Communion where God is known to his people in the breaking of bread. And that's always good and powerful and holy. Yeah. So it's not all in the back of the preacher to be amazing every week. And that, it doesn't mean that we don't want to work hard and study hard and pray that the Holy Spirit would um, teach through the preaching of his word. But it just means that it's not a one-man show. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think it was it. I think C.S. Lewis made the argument that liturgy is kind of like dancing, you know, when you have to think about it, it, it doesn't really, you can't enjoy and really get into dancing how it's like s- supposed to be done. But when you know the steps by heart, when it's all second nature for you, you can, you can focus on your partner, you can focus on the dance that you have. So it sounds like liturgy has a lot of different focuses here. There, it, it safeguards sort of um, 
you know, these important parts of what church should be, uh, whether the pastors do an awesome job or not a great job that week. It also, um, you know, builds some intentionality and freedom into the forms that we have, just kind of breathing every part of the service with some scripture and and theology, um, whether it's the sermon or communion or whatever it is. So that that's um that's wonderful. What do you think? Is there any role of liturgy outside of the church service? You know, Monday through Saturday. Wh- what does liturgy look like there? That's a great question. You're a great podcaster. Uh, <laughs> absolutely. And so Thomas Cranmer was the Archbishop of Canterbury. And when the Church of England broke with, with the Roman Church, um, he, he, he wrote the first Book of Common Prayer. I think it was 1549. And then quickly revised it in 1552. But Anyway, most people could care less about those dates or even the name Thomas Cranmer. The point was that the Book of Common Prayer was to put a Bible-based worship book that would help families pray together. First thing in the morning, they would do morning prayer. They would read the scriptures and say their prayers together. Then at noonday, there's a little short service. Families would be together because back in those days, people worked at home a lot of times. Uh, yeah. And then in the evening, you'd have evening prayer as a family. And then before you go to bed, you do this service called Compline. And that may sound like the weirdest thing if, if you've never heard it, but I, I can tell you that service is amazing. And our 20-somethings that uh, do it, especially if they do it three or four or five times, they're like, I love this service. I love yeah. praying with my family. And so the Book of Common Prayer was not actually meant only for Sundays. It was meant for every day, morning, uh, midday, noon prayer, evening prayer, and compline before you go to bed. And it also has uh, the Psalter in it. It has a lectionary, which is a way to read God's word every single day. So it was made for every day for every man. Hmm. Wow. That's incredible. So, so. Do you think maybe there are ways if if you're not Anglican or or even if you don't use that book of common prayer that we can all adopt some sort of more intentional liturgy into our lives? What, what would that look like? Yeah. So I think everybody finds their way to their own form of liturgy. Uh, <clears throat> I have been reading the one year Bible for probably 20 years. My wife and I read it yeah. every single day. Uh, the one year Bible, it takes you through the whole of scripture in one year. And I think Psalms and Proverbs like two or three times. Um, so that's one thing we do. We also use Paul David Tripp's uh, devotional. A lot of devotionals, honestly, are fluffy nothing. Um, and, and excuse me for hacking people off, but like the book, Jesus Calling, I'm not saying the whole thing's trash because there are some good things in there. But in the preface, you see this lady talking about how God gives her special special revelation and she's going to be blessed to share it with us. That really creeps me out. Uh, yeah. You got to be careful what what kind of devotion you la- lock onto. But bottom line, right. for our family, um, we do the one year Bible. We read Paul David Tripp, and I have I think a guy named John. I don't even know how to pronounce his name. Bailey. It's an old guy. Uh, has a book on prayer that I read, hmm. and then sometimes I will do the daily office morning prayer. To, to be frank with you, you know, I, I usually don't do midday prayer. I'm not even with hmm. my family then. And same with evening prayer. A lot of times I'm not even, I'm not even with my family. Um, I usually do, you know, when I'm in Anglican circles and I love it. So I think there are other ways. And and there, there have been books written recently that are not Anglican, that are not Episcopal, if you will, but have uh, liturgies for every day. I I think you could Google it, but there's a a book, something like, you know, liturgies for every day. Uh, And I've seen a lot of non-denoms and a lot of 20 somethings, 
eating this thing up. They're like, oh, this is yeah. this thing going. Because yeah. how they know that just chaotic worship that's kind of, you know, blowing here and blowing there, and you never know what's going to happen. And often that is not uh, scripturally sound and is man-centered. Eventually, yeah. it's like eating candy. You get so much mm. of it, you just want to throw up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. I think um, for you, having grown up in an Episcopal setting, saying, man, I'm tired of this stuff. I think for me and and you know some other people I know in this generation, like we grew up in the mega churches. We grew up in the you know very opposite end of the spectrum, and so to have something that feels more intentional in each aspect of what we're doing, more, more um, thorough and thought through, it's it's I think a little bit more refreshing and and you know more trendy to be honest, and and kind of the the crowds that are being attracted into that. Uh, I would love to talk more personally for you on the 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 way that liturgy has helped to to shape you, the influence it's had. So on the bot and the the podcast, especially here, we're focusing on um, neglected parts of the Bible, kind of taking it all in, uh, getting a healthy diet of all of it. Um, what would you say for you? How has liturgy shaped the way that you've come to understand the Bible? Oh boy, that's a that's a tough question. Uh, yeah. I don't almost want to ask you. Let me ask you that question. I, I want to know where you're going with this. So, yeah, how, how would you say that liturgy uh, has shaped your view of Scripture? And then let me play off that. Sure. All right. I feel like you're cheating a little bit, but I'll let you slide with it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think, I suppose for me, I mean, you're right. Any Anything that we use consistently, any any patterns or disciplines we think of, those are, in a sense, a, a liturgy. And I think... You know, when when I was in Bible college, I kind of had this weird dilemma of like, okay, I'm studying the Bible every day. Uh, do I still need to have that sort of devo time in the morning where where I treat this, you know, kind of 30 minute separate time of um, connecting with Scripture and and kind of went back and forth on the whole. How do I continue to have a liturgy, a practice of reading the Bible? I think something I realized through that time is by consistently coming back to the scriptures every day by having that part of our habits, part of what we do. I, I think it's more than just learning the information. Uh-huh. It's, it's, it's like coming to be wedded with the word, if that makes sense. It's like by, by coming back to it again and again, it, 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 it shapes our perspective. It shapes our outlook and it kind of, it shapes the way we see what the Bible is for. It's not just a a dictionary we turn to when we want an answer to a question. It's like a an outlook on life that we're soaking in and absorbing the more that we can have those patterns and habits. So I think that's, I guess, to answer that question for me, one of the ways that habits like that, liturgy like that, has helped to shape my understanding of what the Bible is for. But uh, uh, my time's over now. It's Europe. What, what would you say? Yeah. So the question is, how has liturgy shaped my understanding of scripture? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So one thing is that um, good liturgy, because again, everybody has liturgy, but I would say good liturgy is mm-hmm. focused on the Lord. We, we often say we, we perform or dance for an audience of one. At the very beginning of our service, we have this prayer we do. It's called the opening acclamation. And it's, you know, blessed be God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And blessed be his kingdom now and forever. And our people at first hated saying that. But I had to explain to them what we're doing. We are driving a stake in the ground and saying, you know what, guys? 
Um, while you may get personal enrichment and feelings and, and, you know, the Holy Spirit may fall all over you and all that, that's not the, the purpose of our gathering together. The purpose is to bring a sacrifice of praise, to bring adoration to the Father in Jesus' name. And so mm-hmm. I think liturgy has taught me um, that, that all of Scripture should point to the Father. It should always be about the Father, not about us or our feelings or something I'm going to get out of it. You know, like you rub in a right. lamp. Hey, if I do this little uh, thing, then I'm going to feel something or get something. Really, yeah. liturgy has taught me that um, all of Scripture is about a king and a kingdom. And it's about the people of God coming with great uh, appreciation um, to a God who's shown them amazing, undeserved grace. Yeah, That's kind of a, a tautology, but you, you understand what I'm saying. Of course, yeah. So yeah, yeah. I, think, I think liturgy is talk about who's the subject. It's always the king. Um, mm-hmm. What's important? The kingdom. Um, also, it's taught me that the importance of community. You know, a lot of people go, oh, that's overrated. Well, I would suggest to you that the Jews, like they don't even have a synagogue unless they have at least 10 Jewish men of age. Um, so what we realize is it's, it was important to Jesus in his day as a Jew, like they worship as a community. What do we see in the early church? In Acts 2, 42 and following, it says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. That's what the early church did. They devoted themselves. Like I always say it's like a dog uh, watching his master move a bone left, right, left, right. Their eyes were focused. It was it, it captured them. They, they were uh, captured and devoted by the apostles' teaching. That is the scripture and the fellowship. In other words, it was a body. Just as the yeah. Jews had to have, you know, worship communally. And they actually had a liturgy. It was, I think it was called the 18 Blessings or the 18 dis- Dispositions. You can look it up. Mm. But the Jews absolutely said uh, prayers together. And actually, they were the same 18 prayers. We know that when the Jews would even march up to the temple, what did they use? They used the Psalms. And they prayed and they sang them together. And so yeah. I just think there's such a pattern of, of seeing the importance of the king and the kingdom and of, in our case, the body of Christ with the Jews, it would be, you know, Israel. Um, yeah. So there you go. Yeah, that's awesome. But, you know, liturgy shaping the way we understand the Bible, part of that being kind of getting the focus outside of ourselves, making sure we're keeping the main character, the main character here and, and keeping the king in the focus, but also keeping our engagement with the Bible and what it's for in community by having these set patterns that get us praying with our family, that get us praying with the people in the pews behind us, in front of us, that really um, it doesn't just shape our maturity as Christians. It, it shapes the way that the Bible engages with us and the way that we understand God's word. Um, even what you were talking about earlier with the walking through the scriptures over three years, I mean, when we talk about neglected parts of the Bible, that's a, a safeguarded way of making sure we're getting that healthy diet, whether a one-year Bible plan or whether the Book of Common Prayer. Um, I I wanted to ask you to, I mean, obviously, as we go outside of the church building and go outside of our church family, we we start to gauge with a whole other set of liturgy, a a secular culture and their way of looking at life and their habits and practices. Uh, Would you say there's any way that the liturgy that you practice as a Christian has affected the way that you interact 
um, with those around you and, and with secular culture? Oh boy. You ask tough questions. Um, <laughs> honestly, you give good answers. Yeah, this, uh, to be out. honest with you, I don't know that I've ever thought about that. Um, yeah. but one thing I do know because of, um, because of the liturgy and, and specifically the exposure to God's word, the whole council of God's word. Um, mm-hmm. I am, I am always reminded that there's a King and there's a kingdom and that, um, with, without the mercy of the Lord, you know, Titus three kind of stuff without God's mercy, mm-hmm. I, I would, would be, uh, you know, the most cut off, the most lost, the most miserable offender. And so I think that does shape the way <clears throat> that I look at people outside the body of Christ. There was a day when I was not a Christian. I was not a Christian believer. I was churched, but I was not a believer until I was 21. And so I think that um, just reading God's word in community and seeing, you know, all sorts and conditions of men and women has given me a really more grace and more patience to embrace and actually run after those who are lost, much like Jesus went after the one lost sheep. Yeah. Well, I would love now to talk kind of about um, those scriptures that the liturgy has exposed you with, um, you know, thinking about more neglected parts of the Bible. Is there a, a less familiar part of the Bible that's really made a big impact or influence on on your life or your ministry? Wow. Um, I would say probably the Old Testament prophets. Um, yeah, I'd, I'd say... What I tell my kids even <clears throat> is that all of scripture is inspired, breathed by God and without error, but not all of scripture is equally inspiring. You know, there's the passages in Chronicles and Numbers and, you know, verses about mildew and all that, that at first you're like, oh my goodness, I feel like you're beating me in the head with a bluefish. I mean, this is brutal. But yeah. what, what I've realized is the more you read scripture, the more you see it's it, it's an integral, it, it, it's, it's, it fits together. And the yeah. Old Testament points, whispers, sometimes even screams, there's a Messiah coming, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so what, what I find is that a lot of Christians just go to the Gospels or maybe to, maybe to Romans and they like that. Uh, mm-hmm. Some other Christians might go to like Revelation and Daniel, but, but there's 66 books. And so mm-hmm. it is so odd to me that, we only focus on three, four or five books and ignore the other ones. I think yeah. part of the reason we ignore them is because um, there are some drier sections. Let's be honest. There's some that are drier. Um, sure. Also, the, the biggest problem is that a lot of us don't have enough Bible knowledge or understanding of scripture because we haven't spent time in all of scripture to even recognize that some of those sections that, that appear so boring are still whispering um, there's there's a king and a kingdom. Uh, yeah. There's gospel, and so it, if you don't read all of scripture, really, um, you're starving yourself. Yeah. Well, I, I'm I'm curious then, as you've you know pastored and ministered for over thirty years, how have you seen people's interactions with the Bible change over the years, whether for better or or worse? Just kind of the general trends or changes that you've seen? What, what have you noticed? Yeah. Well, the biggest, the biggest change I've seen in the last three years <clears throat> is that people don't bring their Bibles to church. And part of me, you know, I'm 61. So part of me goes, bad people, bad people, not bringing their Bible to church. But you know what? They have it on their smartphone. Yeah. So 
Billy Graham was once asked, hey, what's the best version of the Bible? You know what he said, Andrew? Hmm. Whatever one you'll read. (laughs) (laughs) The conservative evangelical part of me goes, no, no, no. You got to be in the right version. You got to be in the New American Standard or the ESV. Um, But the reality is if, if a brother or sister only read, you know, even a paraphrase like the New Living Translation or something like that, I'm not recommending it, but I'm saying if they read that day in and day out, day in and day out, Um, Mm -hmm. the Holy Spirit would absolutely do a a deep and powerful work in their life as opposed to somebody who never reads God's word. But Mm -hmm. the the biggest change I've seen now is people, they don't have real Bibles or if they have them, they don't use them. They certainly aren't bringing them to church. They're using their smartphone apps. So that's a big change. Um, I think a lot of people in our church do read the one year Bible because that's kind of, that's kind of been a thing I've shared a lot about. Mm -hmm. Um, but I, I, I think generally Christians are lazier about reading scripture now than, than they were when I started pastoring 32 years ago. I think it's because um, we have been conditioned by media. And I'm not, I'm not dogging media saying fake news, bad media. We have been conditioned by media and also by um, TV ads, by movies, by uh, TV shows. They change their view. If you watch a TV show tonight, um, you'll see them change camera views like every one to three to four seconds. And so what does that do to us? It trains us. It teaches us to always be looking here, there, waiting for something new. Uh, and if, if it's not changing you know, every two to three to four seconds, we get bored and check out. So I think for a lot of folks, because we've been conditioned by television by our smartphone. Heck, I grab my smartphone probably every minute just checking for this and checking for that, and I got notifications. Um, I think it's really conditioned us away from having a long, steady time in the presence of the Lord, having a long <clears throat> drink of water uh, in the Holy Scriptures. And that, friends, that actually makes me very sad, but it's also an opportunity. It's also an opportunity because as, as we... Um, get sucked into culture and get sucked away from spending time with the Lord. Um, inevitably we get miserable. You know what? When we're miserable, that's a great time for God to work. So I'm not, I'm not cursing, you know, the current state of affairs. What I'm saying is it's a great time of opportunity. It's a great yeah, time. Absolutely. Man. I mean, talking about liturgy and, and the role that that can have in helping us to engage with that. Why do you think, People don't do that more. Why, why do you think, um, what, what are people's biggest reasons for avoiding liturgy or, or patterns or Bible plans or whatever? Slothfulness. Hmm. Yeah, I, I think bottom line is people do what they want to do. People do what they want to do. Um, and whatever they think is going to meet their needs and bring them happiness and joy, that's what they run to. The problem is that a lot of times we're deceived. A lot of times I'm deceived, you know, um, I have scales in my eyes. Um, and so I run after things, you know, as the scripture says, you've rejected me and you've created uh, your own cisterns, broken cisterns or wells that, that will not hold water. And so that's, I find that Americans, but really across the globe, more and more people just want to create their own systems, their own source of life. Inevitably, what we do know is, um, those, those, um, those patterns, those, those other gods, those other ways of doing life bring brokenness and misery. And so rather than lead, lead us to depression, 
what I say is, again, it's a great opportunity. Most of the people that I know that have come to saving faith <clears throat> have come to saving faith in a time of brokenness. I recently had a, a man in our church who's 82 years old, and he's sung and led choirs, and he's been in church his whole life. But when he's in the midst of cancer, and he really got time alone with the Lord, that time where he could actually listen and not be doing, what the Lord really spoke to his heart. And, and really, he became convinced that he was not a saved man. He was arrogant. He was prideful. And so here at 82 years old, he really finally comes to faith. <clears throat> that at 82 years old, the man came to faith and he is so filled with joy. I wish I could read you the email, but the point is that, that God did an amazing work in his life. Wow. Well, why don't you just, as one final um, encouragement for us today, um, what advice would you give someone who, who says, man, okay, I really want to dive into the scriptures more. I, I really want to have healthy habits and patterns and just understand more of it. Um, what would you tell someone who came to you saying that? Yeah, I think we got to make it practical. Um, yeah. I heard one preacher say, we got to lower the ramp. You know, you can't just tell people, do this, do this, do this. And, they, and they're like, I can't pole vault 15 feet. Like, <laughs> you got to start. You got to lower the ramp and give them an on ramp. So, what I tell people is, hey, don't make it so complicated. Don't make it so complicated. Um, if you have your heart set to have time with the Lord and to grow uh, as a Christian, well, one, one of the best ways to do that is have a time, a place, and a method. A time, a place, and a method. And so for me, most days, <clears throat> for me, most days, uh, most days, my, my time is first thing in the morning when I wake up. Whatever time that may be, whether it's 5.30 or whether it's 8.30 or in between, uh, first thing in the morning when I wake up, I go downstairs, I start uh, some really good coffee. And I usually turn on the gas logs. If, if it's anything over uh, under 55 degrees, I turn on the gas logs. So I have a time first thing in the morning. I have a place by my fireplace in my leather chair um, or in a chair, my favorite chair, right by my gas logs. And so I have a time, I have a place, and now I got to have a method. And the method for me is, again, I use the one-year Bible. I use the daily office on some days, and I use Paul David Tripp's devotional. You may choose another devotional, and that's fine, as long as it's Bible-based. But what I would say is a time, a place, and a method. Uh, I would ask all your listeners, do you have a time, do you have a place, and a method? Because if you don't, you will not keep that divine appointment. You will not have the blessing of spending time with Christ. I think that we got to tell people and remind ourselves is spending time with the Lord is the biggest blessing in the world. We run after so many things trying to fulfill ourselves or feel good or whatever. But the King of Kings, the one who spoke the, the whole creation into existence, makes time in his day to be with us. And it is mm. such a beautiful and sweet place to be. Sometimes it's not all about reading. Sometimes it's about sitting in his presence. Mm. Sometimes it might be about meditating on one verse of scripture. Uh, sometimes it's about praying for other people, not ourselves. Man. Amazing stuff, but there you have it, guys. You know, whether you've come into this um, scared of the word liturgy and uh, all the, the traps and robes that that brings to mind, really, we're just talking about forms here. We're just talking about structures and patterns and habits that we have in our lives and questioning how intentional are we being with all that? What time and place and method are we using, if we're using any, to dive into scripture, to let that shape us and to grow in our relationship with the word? 
So thank you so much, Bishop Lawrence, for joining us today and helping us to see all that. Thank you, Andrew.